Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, January 12, 2018. We are now in the 18s. Um, wow. Yeah, I know it's crazy. <laughs> it's just weird every day. Uh, so my, my name is Jonathan. I'll be your host uh, today. And joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet uh, are um, uh, Doug, Erica, Tiffany, and Gabby. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. I was jumbling up a bit because trying to remember who we're missing today, and we're missing uh, Elliot, so we wish him well. I <laughs> uh, hope his week goes well, and we'll see him next week. Um, so today, we're talking about lies, damned lies in scientific research, um, talking about the uh, evidence-based medicine, uh, quote-unquote evidence-based medicine, <laughs> um, and um, uh, medicinal uh, studies, um, which, of course, uh, result in certain drugs and treatments that become standard. Um, but the practices behind these studies, the foundations of them are, uh, are flawed. And so that's what we want to talk about. So a lot of people, you know, as we've discussed on the show, uh, trust and, and have faith in the medical establishment because of the amount of study they put into their work. And they have this high, you know, kind of uh, regard uh, in society. But when you look under the foundations, not of not of their medicine, so I'm not trying to be cruel, but of the industry that produces these drugs, um, it's totally flawed. And so we wanted to go over that a little bit today. Um, so I think the, the statistical thing is, is very interesting. And I guess just kind of a disclaimer that we're going to talk about a lot of numbers today. Uh, mm. I'm not an expert in statistics. I don't know if any of, of you guys are. <laughs> no. <Nope. Yeah. laughs> I know so I an ethics course in college. Yeah. Mm. So that yeah. All my training. I have studied it like six times because I do require it for my job. And every, mm. you know, every time it's like, <laughs> it's like I see the, I see this, this, the thing, you know, just like the first time, you know, it's just crazy. Well, the, uh, the phrase that we're using in the title lies, damn lies and statistics, uh, that's the original phrase. Uh, it, it was popularized by Mark Twain. Um, it's erroneously attributed to him. They don't know quite, uh, some people say that it was British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, but the quote is there are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies and statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's poignant because yeah. it is, it's a, it's a, it's a whole other type of manipulation of the truth. Um, mm. You know, where it, it, the intent of it is to present the truth in a certain way. And using this math, you can fudge things so that they look really favorable. Um, mm. You know, even small examples you can even do in your daily life. Like, uh, just tell yourself, like, how many milligrams of saturated fat you had. And it sounds crazy. You know, mm. if you convert it from grams to milligrams, you're like, whoa. So you can inflate <laughs> numbers if you just present them to somebody without a context. Mm. Um, and that's like a very simple example. Of course, statistics is more complex than that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Debbie, what? Yeah, I guess let's uh, from from those of us who are more versed in this than I am, Gabby and Doug. Do you guys have uh, direct experience with this at all? Uh, yes. Well, actually, my first experience with statistics or studies. It was when I was in Italy. This was ooh, a long time ago already, like 2003 was this study. And I was recruited to be a study coordinator, you know, for a multi-center study, international study, you know. Uh, it was actually sponsored by, uh, in California, I think uh, Stanford University, University was involved. 
And that was my first experience. Um, it was basically, I was in charge of following all the protocol in the Italian center, making sure it was done perfectly well and with scientific rigor and keeping all our data so somebody else could come up and check on us and make sure that we did it well. And uh, a third party was invited to check on the data. And uh, yeah, we became friends uh, very, uh, very easily. Like she was very friendly and uh, she was telling me like how she was going to leave her job because it was so bad. <laughs> you know, it's just like it was uh, the study itself where I, what I witnessed. Uh, yes, some data came out not very favorable. And when I saw the final publication, not the Italian experience was published, but the German experience was published. And it was all like 180 degrees opposite of what I saw from our Italian center. Mm. So, yes, that was very disappointed. And they managed to publish this in circulation, which is a mm. pretty fancy journal. So it's not that they didn't, that they lied or anything. I'm pretty sure maybe the Germans had a better experience than us in Italy. It's just that, you know, they didn't thought it was worth the risk for the patients or anything. It was, uh, it was involved in a technology in heart surgery. I was just going to say, and, what was it? Was it a medical yeah, procedure? It was, yeah. it was a, a very specific type of stent that never flew. Uh, it never came out like a, for the wider public, I think, because yeah. It was pretty obvious that, no, it didn't make any sense, you know, kind of thing. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, that was my first experience. After that, I knew that I will never see, like, a protocol or study with the same eyes again. The same hmm. illusory eyes that I had when I came out of med school, you know, where I thought everything was kind of perfect. I was pretty pretty naive, you know, for me to think that anyway. So, sure. Yeah. So that's hmm. my first experience. I participated in a research study once when I was in college uh. studying psychology. We did a research study on language of schizophrenics and either both parents, mom and dad, or just moms. So we had all these recorded uh, conversations with either the schizophrenic person or their parent. And I would have to go through and mark certain speech anomalies but I don't know exactly what they, how they did the uh, data collection, like all the statistical math and numbers and all that stuff. I was just marking the speech. And then I did another one, <laughs> which was fantastic for, <laughs> for today's standards, because doing all this reading, you realize there really aren't any standards. So <laughs> I was working as an intern at an outpatient mental health clinic with schizophrenics. So I decided that I would do a survey study of schizophrenics and smoking. So basically, I just passed out a questionnaire and they answered it. And that's all the rigor that it involved. (laughs) 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 And the conclusion was a lot of schizophrenics smoke. I could have told you that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. That I know how this works. A true yeah. scientist, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, we—I uh, guess—to give some context to this, uh, we have a, a, a clip that might help. 
it also might hinder. So just a uh, fair <laughs> warning that there's – this is a, a gentleman from Yale named Perry Wilson, and it's uh, it was published on MedPage today. And he's talking about the p-value in statistics and how it can be manipulated um, to distort you know medical studies. I want a disclaimer that uh, he is uh, – um, I don't want to say pro-science because that makes me sound dumb. But he uh, <laughs> is <laughs> – but he comes around <clears throat> and is making an argument that this is not necessarily the establishment's fault, just that it's possible. So I personally disagree with that, you know, but there you have it. So let's, let's listen to this and we'll come back and see if we can't make some sense out of it. Some medical studies are wrong. We know this through intuition and experience, but how many? We can tolerate some false positive studies in the literature, provided the majority of research is still good. Science can correct itself along the way. But what percent of studies that claim a benefit of a drug or intervention are truly true? If you're an optimist, you'll say somewhere around 95%, and you're probably way off. To understand why, look no farther than the p-value the p-value. In the hyper-competitive arena of medical research, it has taken on a level of significance well beyond what was intended by its inventor, R.A. Fisher. And in fact, it may be one of the most misleading statistics in all of medicine. Let's start at the beginning. Humans love categories. When we do a study, we want to know if the results are positive or negative. We're binary creatures with little room for spectrum or subtlety. Out of the desire to categorize research, the conventional p-value threshold of 0.05 was born. If you perform a statistical test and get a p-value of 0.05, it means that you'd get results as strange as yours, or stranger, 5% of the time, assuming only chance was operating. Why didn't I just say your results have less than a 5% chance of being wrong? Well, I didn't say that because it wouldn't be true, and yet that's what people tend to think when they see a low p-value. To really get some intuition behind this, though, you need an example. Say you and I are walking down the street and I find a quarter. I start flipping it casually and calling out the results. Heads, 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 heads. At what point do you feel that there's something strange about this quarter? After two heads in a row? After four? After ten? Most people start getting suspicious around five heads in a row. I'll point out that simple probability would suggest this happens a little more than 3% of the time. That itch that something isn't right, something isn't happening as it should under a benevolent creator who only makes quarters with a head and a tail, gives us our p-value threshold. Now, imagine it wasn't me, your friend, picking up a quarter on the side of the street. It was this guy, a street magician. And what's more, he offers you $2 for every time the quarter comes up tails, but you have to pay him $1 every time the quarter comes up heads. Would you be suspicious? How many heads in a row before you walk away from that bet? What you're doing here is using something called prior probability. When I just found the quarter on the street, your prior probability that it was a normal two-sided quarter was very high. You'd expect 50% heads, so it takes me getting a lot of heads in a row before you're willing to question your assumption. When the street magician is flipping his quarter, your prior probability of a fair quarter is much lower. It takes less flips to make you think something strange is going on. But the p-value doesn't take into account prior probability. It's a measure of how weird your data is, assuming that nothing strange is going on. This interaction between prior probability and the observed data is quantified in something called Bayes' theorem, and it's key to understanding why the rate of wrong medical research may be very much higher than you would expect. 
Let's imagine we have 100,000 hypotheses to test, 100,000 clinical trials to perform. In this scenario, I have unlimited funding, which is very nice. Now, some of these hypotheses are wrong. We hypothesize that drug A will help condition X, but it might not. We have to test it. Let's start by assuming that 50% of the hypotheses are wrong and see how our trials go. Well, of the 100,000 drugs, 50,000 shouldn't work. But because of that p-value threshold of 5%, I'll misclassify 2,500 of those as being successful. Of the 50,000 drugs that really do work, I'll capture around 40,000 and miss 10,000. This assumes a relatively standard 80% power to detect an effect where one really exists. So we've done our trials, and what do we see? Well, 2,500 of the 42,500 positive trials are false positives for a rate of about 6%, not too shabby. But remember, I had assumed that 50% of my hypotheses would work. What if that number's lower? What if it's more like, say, 10%? Now we have 90,000 drugs that don't work and 10,000 that do. Because of that 5% p-value threshold, I'll falsely think 4,500 of the 90,000 inert drugs work for the disease. Because of 80% power to detect an effect where one really exists, I'll catch 8,000 of the 10,000 drugs that really do work. But now what are the results of my trials? Well, 4,500 of the 12,500 positive trials are false positives for a rate of 36%. Now we need to start worrying. What I've shown you briefly here is that the key to interpreting any, quote, positive study lies in an assessment of how likely you thought the hypothesis was to be true in the first place. Just because the p-value is 0.04 does not mean that the study only has a 4% chance of being false. It can be way higher than that. It simply depends how unlikely the hypothesis was to start with. Here's a handy table to make it clearer. Despite all the studies in this table being statistically significant with a p-value of 0.05, you can see that the probability of a true finding changes dramatically based on how likely you think the result was before the study began. So how many studies in the medical literature are false positives? It depends very much on the proportion of true hypotheses. If you think that proportion might be as low as 10%, you're looking at a 35% false positive rate in the literature. And by the way, this analysis assumes all these studies are done perfectly. No confounding, no publication bias, no inappropriate methods, no fraud. The situation in the medical literature is probably worse than what I'm reporting here. But there is an optimistic note. The process of science saves us from this rabbit hole. Replication of studies marches us up the prior probability ladder, giving us more and more confidence if the results are consistent. We should embrace these studies. We should publish them in high-profile journals. We should encourage the NIH and other agencies to fund them. Because in the end, the <coughs> study stands not only on the strength of the data, but on the strength of the hypothesis. For MedPage Today, I'm Perry Wilson. Whew. Everybody okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. You can breathe now. Right over my head. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's brain's still in their head? Yeah, that was a hard one. No. Uh, it, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And I don't think that, that what he said at the end was really wrong, necessarily. Mm. I think, like, mm. uh, reproducibility or replicability, however you want to say that, um, is very important in scientific studies. And I think that um, by having, uh, you know, another set of researchers kind of go through the same process and see if they get the same results, we'll actually do a lot to... Um, to, to, you know, show that the finding was actually relevant and actually real. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the problems, though, is that um, a lot of times because of the way that the system is set up for doing these studies, uh, they value kind of getting these findings out quickly. And um, very few people want to actually sit around and wait for another study to be done so it can be replicated. Mm-hmm. You know, especially, uh, you know, when you consider like a lot of these are for drug trials and um, they want to get that drug on the market. So they don't want to, to have to have another costly study and then um, wait around to see if it was actually replicated. So yeah. I, I, I think replication actually is, is, is very important, but yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, that's, that's my stance. No, that's a great point. And I, I, I must admit that after listening to that again, it, uh, it came a bit clearer. I think maybe the first time I got jumbled by the, <laughs> the data Yeah. and then right. what I, in a full transparency, what I thought I heard him say was going into the end of that, was um, you know th- we can we can save these studies through the scientific method, which I get like that and that that is mm. valid. But I was getting like a, an implication that you know that science is the empirical thing that can save us. Where I'm not so right. sure about that because you know if you want to get super technical about it, I guess statistics is is science. I, I'm sure somebody's going to punch me for saying that, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like I there's there's a difference between that rigorous. Like you're doing this, you record everything. There's no in- interpretation of the data. There's just the data, and it does this mm. and it does that, and you see what happened, and then you write it down, and that's it. Um, but then you know we, we don't have any systems that really operate that way. Every system that uses the scientific method is uh, influenced by human emotion and human yeah. drama and you know ego and all those things. Yeah, and, and I think that brings up an important point about bias, really, because. Uh, you know, there's a there's a big movement now, but uh, of of people kind of declaring their biases, you know, or you know, declaring what um, who's funding the study uh, and that sort of thing. And the pro- I think a lot of the problem actually comes from uh, hidden biases. You know, like say, take an example where uh, there's one uh, group of researchers or uh, one researcher in particular who's doing a study on uh, veganism and heart disease. Let's I just pulled that out of the air. So, and this, maybe this author is actually a, uh, a vegan who, you know, wholeheartedly believes that this is kind of the best diet and the diet that will save everyone. Um, but they're not necessarily going to declare that they are a vegan um, when they, they are putting this study out there. And there might be some kind of inherent bias in what they're doing um, in the study in some way. It might not even be conscious. You know, it might just be that the, because the, the, the person has this kind of, uh, predetermined idea going into it, then it's going to influence the study in some way. So um, it would be really good if people had kind of like a, not only all their funding um, declared, but also like who they are as a person, what kind of circles they hang out in. Um, the problem what kind that of, I see, you know, Duke, is I see this, I see this, this um, the same thing that you're seeing and that most people from my point of view, don't do it consciously. Yes, there are those who yeah. lied consciously with statistics. But most people are just biased and they think they, they know better, but they don't. You know, if you are sponsored by Coca-Cola, say, for instance, mm. of course you are going to, like, you know, uh, look for other factors other than, you know, dietary Coke, you know, your research, mm-hmm. you know, I don't It's yeah. just obvious. But a lot of people miss it. They think they are immune to that bias when, no, they're not. Yeah. Yeah, especially if your funders have some kind of say in how the study is done. 
Um, I mean, Gabby, you published an article recently about Coca-Cola specifically, and you know they 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 had declared on their paper, although Coca-Cola funded this, um, they didn't have any say in how we conducted the study. And then you know a Freedom of Information Act uh, request brought out that no, they actually did. They had quite a bit of say in how the study was done and what countries were looked at and and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Yeah, just because of my past experience, I always, you know, always, always uh, look for sponsorship and a study. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I have spent like half an hour looking for it because it is so hidden. You have, you don't have an idea, you know, you have to go to the website. Where are the conflicts of interest? Where where is the declaration of interest? And then you find it linked in small letters in the last part of a section in the website. And there you go, like a PDF, PDF of 30 pages. I'm talking very specifically about the guidelines, cholesterol guidelines of the, the European cholesterol guidelines. I want to see people's, uh, you know, declaration of interest. It was like a huge PDF. Some authors had like an entire page of declarations. I was like, oh, my God, you know, nobody's talking about this. You know, this is completely normalized. It is not normal. You cannot write mm-hmm. a guideline when you were sponsored by the same pharmaceutical company that sells the cholesterol, uh, the lowering cholesterol drug, you know. Yeah. Well, even if the scientists and researchers aren't conscious of their own bias, if you're getting money from somebody to conduct a study, even if you think that you can maintain neutrality, there's still something that is going to tell you I better not piss off these people who are giving me this money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For one, you have to make a living and you have to feed your family and you want to keep that income coming in. So even if you think that you can withstand the rigors of having a study that doesn't kind of uh, reflect what your sponsors would like, there's still yeah. that risk. Yeah. And on top of it, uh, despite who is sponsoring your study, if you are aware of what the mainstream beliefs are, like that statins help prevent cardiovascular events, you're going to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's like peer pressure, basically. Mm-hmm. Like going against, like, you know, all those scientists like to pretend that they're above all that kind of stuff. I, I don't think that they are at all. Like for somebody to actually come out with a study that contradicts what the prevailing view is, is actually, you know, there's a lot set up, you know, uh, not even necessarily like uh, blatantly, but that, you know, on it's difficult to go against the prevailing wisdom, uh, wisdom in, you know, uh, quotation marks. But uh, because there is kind of a pressure to like, you know, don't upset the boat. Don't uh, don't go against uh, what everybody thinks, because. You're going to be uh, you're going to be put under a lot of scrutiny first of all, but yeah, um, and even attacked in some cases. A good example of that is uh, Dr. Tyrone Hayes, who worked at UC Berkeley, who did the mm. study on atrazine for Syngenta, and mm-hmm. I mean for years is studying the effects on frogs. And initially, he didn't think anything was to come of it, and then it did turn out that it changed the sex of the frogs, right? And so he reluctantly put his information out there and for years now he has been fighting them they've been attacking him his Mm -hmm. his credentials and his credibility and he basically has said like my life has been ruined my career has been ruined but I really believe the 
the public needs to know this science. And so yeah. that's an example of somebody, you know, when he started out, he said, you know, I, I didn't know that what the results were going to be. But when the studies came in, it showed that sure enough, it's really bad. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I have a moral obligation to publish these findings. I mean, and they come now, Syngenta, whatever their secret people come to all his lectures. I mean, he's, He's completely freaked out about the fact that he's being followed and, you know, they don't want this research out there. And how yeah. many other researchers look at him as an example of what not to do? Yeah. Nobody wants that. Well, exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, there's another guy, too, um, Seralini, um, who did uh, a GMO study on uh, GM maize. Um, it was NK603. Anyway, it uh, it was basically a study, like uh, Monsanto themselves had done a study, and they'd looked at the effects of um, eating this maize and um, uh, on rats for 90 days, which was kind of like the minimum. So Seralini and his uh, fellow researchers kind of looked at it and said, well, we should do it on two years, you know, to see if there's any kind of more long-term effects of of, uh, eating this. And they did a really well-controlled study where they actually tested just the Roundup on its own and just the glyphosate, so not even as a compound of Roundup, and just the maize on its own. So they they did all these things to see where, um, if there were effects, where exactly they were coming from. And they found that the the worst thing of all was Roundup, not uh, glyphosate on its own actually wasn't as bad as Roundup. But, you know, the brats had all these problems like tumors and, and all this other kind of different stuff. And um, when they published their results, at first it was accepted, and then they started getting pressure to retract the study um, from the editor of the journal. And eventually the um, journal uh, retracted the study without their permission, um, and they never moved to retract the original Monsanto study, despite the fact that it was essentially like the same kind of thing. And um, and he was smeared, and they were saying that... Uh, you know, all these ad hominem attacks on uh, him and his researchers and that it was scientific fraud. It was reported in the press that it was scientific fraud, despite the fact that the editor never actually accused it of being scientific fraud. So, yeah, lots of uh, of lots of corruption going on there. Well, that's yeah. the same thing that happened to Dr. Andrew <clears throat> Wakefield when, when he was studying yep. the MMR and autism links. And he mm-hmm. was completely vilified in the press and had his papers retracted and his license suspended. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's probably the worst case actually of of what's happened to anybody. And anybody who's doing vaccine research knows in the background there's that whole Andrew Wakefield thing. It's like, "Oh, you don't want to be another Andrew Rake- Wakefield." So, mm-hmm. you better find yeah. the right results. And the interesting part about him is that he was cleared mm-hmm. of all that those charges, but that never came out. Or if it no. does come out, it'll be like on page 6 of the newspaper in a tiny little box. Yeah, and I mean, the, the still the the prevailing wisdom on it is that he he perpetrated fraud, and uh, the media still says that. Yeah. What was that movie? There was a a, a documentary about um, is it Tainted Milk or BGH and Milk? Oh, uh, the corporation. And was that on the corporation? Okay, yeah, and they talked about those, but those guys had shot a separate documentary that they were talking about. That's what I was trying to remember, that they had shot it for Fox, for the Fox network, and then they were harassed by the uh, the company's, um, I want to say it was Monsanto. I'm butchering this. I'll try to look up the name. <laughs> anyway, it was a very similar story. Guys trying to do a straight-up journalistic study, 
um, and find out what's going on and getting railroaded and, you know, very clearly for financial interests and saving face with the public and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's, it's a tale as old as time, right? Like, uh, th- that's the whole reason for the RICO statutes in the law. You can't own all the, the points of the supply chain uh, or, you know, you have a monopoly and then you're, you know, that's the, um, what's the other word for RICO? Um, not collusion, but you know what I mean. We're, we're racketeering. This is what I'm trying to think of. Yeah. Mm. And that's, that's essentially, I think, what's kind of going on here where people collude, uh, to take advantage of the, of the situation, the situation being the current state of, uh, medical research, you know? Mm. So, I mean, I don't know if you could make an argument that they could be charged with racketeering because there is financial gain. Uh, but who knows? Mm. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Not a statistician, not a lawyer. Not a, I'm not a nothing. Not a doctor. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, there was I mean, one, uh, I think he might have been Japanese researcher who was doing a lot of research on tumor biology. And hmm. it came out that his studies were fraudulent and he actually had to repay $7 million in grant money. And wow. I think he was sentenced That's to awesome. like. 18 to 20 months or something like that in prison, which is huh. pretty much unheard of. Uh, so I wonder uh-huh. who he pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> was he actually perpetrating fraud, fraud or was it uh, some kind of smear? From what they say, he was. <laughs> <laughs> well. Oh, I found what I was trying to remember. Uh it's in the corporation. The journalists are Jane Aker and Steve Wilson. They were fired from Fox um, after refusing to change their story about Pozolac, which is a BGH, bovine growth hormone, uh, made by Monsanto. So that mm. was it. They did an investigative report on that. Uh, Fox said, you got to change this. They said, nope, and then they fired him. And then they sued Fox for that, and I think they won the lawsuit. Hmm. Huh. Um, yeah. Well... The corruption is never ending. It's interesting because um, reading some of the, the articles for um, preparing for this show, I didn't realize how much um, how many studies are being retracted lately. Yeah. Like apparently there's a, a huge increase in the number of studies that are actually being retracted. And although some of them are just due to errors or uh, for some other kind of reason, apparently a lot of them are because of fraud. So it seems like scientific fraud is actually on the increase. Yeah, some of the stats on that, I think they were saying retractions in peer-reviewed journals has jumped substantially since the 1970s. So in 1976, there were fewer than uh, 10 fraud retractions for every 1 million studies published. Hmm. Compare that with 96 retractions per million in 2007. So that's even like 11 years ago. So it'd be interesting to find out what the stats are now. But they were saying uh, fraud was the number one cause of retractions, accounting for 43%. And prominent retractions cited for fraud, and they used Wakefield's study, you know, and then the uh, Journal of Science was number one, and the Proceedings of Natural Academy of Science were number two. So those were the two journals that had the most retractions. But they mm-hmm. say that wow. it's just because they're better at finding uh, errors. errors. Sure. Yeah, right. Plus, what's your they p-value don't say on that? What made them so bad at it before? <laughs> what makes them better at it now? That's just their 
answer that they give. Yeah. Yeah. And it was actually like the guy that had to pay back $7 million. He was researching the HIV vaccine and he was spiking his rabbit blood samples to make his vaccine look better. So that's what he did. Oh, oh God. <laughs> well, according to some surveys. In prison. Yeah. How long? According to some surveys. 57 months. Uh, that's not enough. <laughs> according to some surveys, uh, over 70% of people are reporting that they've seen somebody lying on their publications or, yeah, it's. It's made up or the light, you know, over 70% of those surveyed, you know. Or they plagiarize. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, plagiarism is a big one, too. Which so, you think, you know, with computers and stuff like that, you think, like, detecting plagiarism might be easier. Like, you just do a kind of a cut and paragraph paste. search. Yeah. Well, that was one of the reasons why they said that it was more retractions going on nowadays because they were better able to detect plagiarism. But plagiarism mm. isn't the cause of all the retractions. I mean, if you have a computer algorithm that can detect plagiarism, that's one thing, but you can't really use a computer algorithm to detect outright fraud like this guy right. who was spiking his samples. There's yes. no computer that's going to tell you that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And oh, according to one of my... <coughs> Go on, Gabby. No, I was going to change the subject. <laughs> you better. Well, it seems like most of it is in drug studies, right? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Is no, it? Gonna... I, no, there's... I mean, there's that, that classic... I'm sorry, Gabby. I cut you off. It's not like you had some... Uh, wh where were you going to go? We'll, we'll come back around... Well, I was going to actually mention my favorite um, researcher on this topic. It's uh, Don, um, what's his name, Ioannidis. He's the mm -hmm. chief of Stanford University's Prevention Research Center. He has written articles such as why almost everything you hear about medicine is wrong and the mass production of redundant, misleading, and conflicted systematic reviews and meta-analysis. He basically says that... Um, Meta-analysis are been taken over by the industry sponsors and only like about 3% of all of them are useful and the rest is pure garbage, you know. 3%. Wow. 3%, yeah. Mostly he talks about... is when you gather up a bunch of studies and you review them yeah. and try to reach some conclusion. Yeah. But what if the People's studies that you're grabbing are all messed up themselves? So you're yeah. Exactly. He puts the examples of, for example, the field of antidepressants, depression, you know. Um, he says that 185 meta-analyses of antidepressants were published between 2007 and 2014, and they're either produced by industry employees or authors with industry ties, and yes, they've said it, they're pretty much useless, you know. Yeah. Well, we, one of the articles we were reading for for uh, today's show was uh, talking about sugar and the sugar research and there was that uh, study in the the 60s uh jama internal medicine oh let's see this is a new article published in jama Inter internal medicine revealing that in the 60s revealing i think we knew this the american sugar lobby paid off harvard researchers to arrive at research conclusions which downplayed the link between sugar and heart disease and overstated mm -hmm. the connection between saturated fats and heart disease. So they just straight mm -hmm. up paid them to do that. Um, yeah. You know, so it happens a lot. I mean, there's even in, uh, 
uh, in the tax revenue, you know, for the country. Um, there's another part of this article that says that uh, taxpayers shell out uh, $280 million, uh, to cover the cost of loans from the USDA to sugar companies, which they are unable to pay back as of yet. And that's actually cited there. So, you know, it's like if you really want to piss people off, you tell them they're, they're paying for it. Yeah. 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 And you have to realize people are dying because of this. You know, just because yeah. they overplayed saturated fat and heart disease, which actually has a protective factor in cardiovascular disease. Mm. And a lot of people turn into sugar instead. Just think about the millions of people who have died, you know. Yeah. Because of research like this. Yeah, well, yeah. what did we cite a couple of weeks ago that uh, in the next 10 years, 10 to 20 years, one in three are going to be diabetic in the in the Western world? Or is that actually the case now? I think maybe one in three are pre-diabetic at this point in time. But it's a very, very high number. Uh, diabetes is exploding. Yeah. It is. Yeah. <clears throat> so does all of this just come down to money? Like the big pharma companies just don't want to lose dollars and they have an obligation to their stockholders to make money. Mm. And I think I read somewhere that it was actually against the law for a corporation to not make money for its stockholders. Yeah, that's actually the point of Marcia Angel. She was a former editor-in-chief of New England Journal of Medicine. And she mm. was saying, okay, we have to remember that, you know, these people, they just like... Their only ethics is for their, for the, 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 you know, their, their stakeholder, their, their stakeholders. Yeah. But, Even apart, you know. Apart from the corporations making money for their stockholders, I mean, the researchers need jobs too. They have. Well, that's families, just it. And there's yeah. entire university departments that are dependent on this funding. A lot of people get money from this behemoth. And right, you're yeah. not going to turn around and say, oh, everything we're studying is a bunch of crap. Let's just yeah. all be unemployed right now. Well, yeah. I mean, it's that whole publisher peril thing, right? Where it's like these researchers are under are under pressure to publish something. Mm-hmm. So even at that very basic level, it's like they may do – like a lot of them don't want to take any kind of chances, right? So they'll take a, an existing study and maybe change it up a little bit and redo it. And it's like, wow, okay, I published but you know, is it is it actually useful? Is anybody actually and, looking at that? And, and and you know, is it? It is. Comp- and the point is, it is unethical. You know, if a yeah. researcher or a doctor, you know, they're only you know, um, they should only respond to the pay- to their patients, not to the stakeholders. You know, it's unethical, yeah. and it's completely mm. normalized right now. Even the World Health Organization, they wanted to put a top on sugar. And the sugar industry said, okay, if you put a tap on sugar, you know, we're just removing funding. And, you know, there's all these, I don't know, thousands of people that will be unemployed and whatever, you know. So they didn't. This was years ago. Mm. But they didn't, you know. This is the World, the world Health Organization. If they're like, you know, if they don't take a stand, who who is going to do it then? Yeah. So yeah, does that, that mean... Like... Go ahead, oh, Jonathan. I was going to change oh, the subject. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say there was like the uh, the too big to fail banks, right, in 2008. Mm-hmm. And the pharmaceutical companies are in a way too big to fail. And I think they weren't too big to fail because, you know, it would be this great tragedy. 
if the company ceased to exist, the tragedy would be that many tens of thousands of people would lose their livelihood. And that's why it's too big to fail. I think in the case of the banks, it was more so related to the economy, but you know, in, in general, but when you imagine that, imagine Pfizer going down, how many people lose their jobs? And now I can say, sure, in the long run, you probably find a better job, you know, ethically and morally than you had at Pfizer. Um, <laughs> but you know, who am, I, who am I to say that you need to lose your job and now go find a new one? You know, I mean, that's, uh, that's a big deal for many, many families. So that's what you have to look at as well. It's like, you know, the devil's driving the, the economy. So if you kill the devil, you kill everything else. Well, one of the really awful things about all of this is that doctors follow these standards of care. Mm-hmm. Uh, they depend on this research to guide all of their decisions, like what surgeries to conduct, what medications to prescribe. And sometimes these doctors know that certain treatments do not work because they've seen it in their patients, but they'll still tell their patients to undergo a certain surgery or to take a certain medication because they don't want to go against the grain. And there's this belief that as long as they're following the standard of care, if there's a bad outcome with their patient, they're not going to be held liable because, hey, I was doing what everybody yeah. else is doing. Well, that's so, true. I was going by yeah, the protocol. If it's, yeah, mm-hmm. if, it's a, if it's a standardized protocol, that's the accepted protocol, then, you know, then the doctor is not going to be held uh, accountable. It's like, well, I was only following the protocol. Mm-hmm. So if the protocol is messed up, it's like, you know, there's, there's a, a strong incentive for them not to go against that protocol because it's dangerous. Yeah, and that that's the whole policy thing too. It's always frustrating, right, when you hear somebody say that's just, sorry, it's policy. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Well, okay. In one of the articles we read, they were talking about this clot busting stroke drug called Atalplase, and they uh did these studies on it, but out of the 12 studies, there were only two that found any benefit, and five of them had to be stopped because there was no benefit or because the patients in the studies had more hemorrhages or increased death rates. But Mm. according to the standard of care and Mm. getting it onto the protocol, the backers of the drug wanted to use it in hospitals. Like if you have a stroke, the ambulance is going to take you to a stroke certified hospital. So if they have adult plays on their stroke protocol and it doesn't work, I mean, where does that leave the patient? Mm. Dead. Yeah. Yeah. And, Dead. and how yeah. how how many times does the patient go? Wait, I read a a mm-hmm. review and it's not good, and I don't <laughs> yeah, want exactly. it. <laughs> the doctor says, I don't want you looking on the internet. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I've heard a number of people yeah. say that in in various cases. I wonder too. This might be a chance if uh, any of our listeners have a good story about you know coming up against the the medical establishment, even in the, is something as small as you trying to tell your doctor that you learned something. Cause I hear that more often than not that somebody goes and talks to their doctor and they're like, don't try to do this is my job, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. and, uh, yeah, I mean, you would think, well, of course you would think a lot of things, but that, you know, that level of, uh, <clears throat> intellect and skill that you do have to have to be a medical professional would also come along with some sort of, uh, you know, sense of uh, a reason a basic uh, idea that you are in fa- uh, fallible you know <laughs> so it's like humbleness yeah humility right mm. yeah or even curiosity I, I mean, you know 
Yeah. I think it's been beaten out of them. They don't want to go against the grain. I've heard doctors actually get angry at patients say, oh, where did you get your medical degree from? Mm-hmm. And ones that say, don't be looking on the Internet for stuff. Yeah. They live in a bubble. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, like, in a lot of cases, in most cases, I think you could say that doctors aren't actually reading the studies. In a lot of cases, I think that they require, they depend on the pharmaceutical reps who kind of come with, you know, their file folder full of uh, studies um, and, you know, recommend these drugs to, to doctors and they kind of might, you know, flip through it or something like that. Yep, looks good. Okay, I'll start doing this one. They're going to give me, you know, free samples so I can try them out. So I don't, I don't think that, it, I think it's, it's rare that doctors are actually reading the journals because they just don't have time to do it. Um, and certainly not looking, sorry? At best, they might just read the abstract. And that's yeah. probably pushing it in a lot of cases because they really don't have the time. But if they do read the abstract, that's okay. But sometimes what's in the abstract is completely different from the conclusions that the researchers reached in their study. Yeah. And how yeah. many doctors are actually going to wade through all the material and actually crunch the numbers themselves and see if the researchers were actually doing no. the right thing? Or like Gabby yeah. said, go to find out who actually funded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the <Yeah>. guidelines. <laughs> Turn to the back of the 27 pages and see who funded it. Yeah, well, it took me half an hour to find just the damn, you know, declaration of interest. <laughs> and I remember watching a documentary. It's a Spanish documentary. It was the health ministry, uh, you know, the minister of health, because the public system here is very good. And the government pays for the, for big pharma, you know, for ph- pharmaceutical drugs. So farmer reps, they go to the government and they sell so their stuff so they will be financed by the system so doctors can prescribe it for free, kind of, you know. And he was saying they were so damn good, you know. They're so good at their job, you know. These The farmer reps, it's just like, you know, they can sell you anything, you know. <laughs> they're yeah. commercial people, you know. <laughs> and most people are not aware of this, you know, how they're being played and manipulated by by numbers and making it look so good. And and he was admitting that, yeah, they made us several, uh, how do you say, goles, uh, you know, where you score a point. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And not to mention the fact that most drug reps are really good looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> They're very good, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I imagine a lot of it comes down to, too, like this, the daily grind. Uh, you know, and not being, just not having enough time to think about things. Because you think most doctors aren't, you know, diagnosticians necessarily. They're dealing with people coming through with colds and twisted ankles and cuts, you know, and stuff like that on a, you know, or granted, not everything is that banal. But, you know, I mean, like they probably get overwhelmed with just the daily grind of it. And who's, like you said, Tiff, who's going to go home, you know, instead, when you go home, you want to watch a movie and Mm -hmm. chill out because I'm going to go back to the clinic at six in the morning yeah well that's understandable in a way but if we want to get into peer review Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so peer review is when a person or scientist submits a study to a journal and the editor of that journal is supposed to send that study to peers preferably people who work in the same area of study as the author who submitted the paper in the first place. And they're supposed to look it over and give recommendations of whether it should be published or not. 
So we can understand that doctors may not have the time to do this, but the researchers themselves who are all studying the same thing have more uh, meat in the game maybe. And this is their field of expertise. They do this kind of thing too. A lot of the times they'll just look at the study and say, oh yeah, I think it's okay. <laughs> Very rarely do they ask for the raw data. And like some scientists won't even give up their raw data, which was shocking to me. Like mm. some people <laughs> get a, a paper stuck published and you want to make sure that maybe somebody else can come along in the future and replicate your results, but you don't want to give up your raw data. I mean, that's a big clue right there that maybe you're doing something that was kind of shady. Yeah, it totally just occurred to me that that idea of applying intellectual property, that kind of research harms the ability to, to, to reproduce the, the experiment, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Because now you yeah. think of it as intellectual property. I'm not going to give this up. Like if I develop an app, you know, no, I'm not going to give you my source code. Uh, so yeah. they think of it that way, but it's not that way. It's something that needs to be communal. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there are issues, though. Of us all. I mean, these are people's lives on the line uh, for a lot of this medical research. And they're hoarding it like Gollum or something. Yeah. But there are there are some issues with it, though, because um, <clears throat> there have been cases where um, somebody put their article up for peer review. Mm-hmm. And one of the people reviewing actually, you know, said, no, don't publish this one. It's not good. And then plagiarized their paper mm-hmm. and like, oh, well. and, and took it and then like basically took everything that they had and then went and tried to publish it on their own under their own mm-hmm. name. Well, um, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of problems with the peer review process, I think. Yeah, that's just one. Another one is that peer review is completely anonymous. So say you submit a paper to a journal to have it published and there's these people that are peer reviewing your paper, but you don't know who they are. You don't know if they have an axe to grind. You don't know if it was your ex-girlfriend that worked at the University <laughs> of Sandusky or somewhere that's saying, no, don't publish this research. Uh, you have no idea because no one knows who these people are. Yeah. <laughs> well, were... You can't challenge it. Yeah. And there was one actually... Um... They did a study on, on peer review, actually, where they had the editor for a journal look through a number of studies and kind of pick the ones that, that uh, this editor thought was were worthy of publishing. And then they put them up for peer review. And it's essentially the exact same thing came back. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, what is the peer review process really adding? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if basically the editor who is educated and knows kind of what they're looking for, you know, why bother going through that whole peer review process if, if essentially it's like the, the same thing's going to come back? Yeah. How do we know that they're not just flipping a coin? I think there was one yeah. article they read. That they just speculated. They didn't say that they actually did this, but they got a bunch of papers and they threw them down a stairwell. And whichever ones landed <laughs> at the bottom, those were the ones that they published. it's really that bad (laughs) oh my god I mean you have to think that these are just people like you and I who get lazy or who don't want to do things or maybe they have something better to do that day and they're just like "Eh, whatever just publish it or don't publish it I don't like the way he worded this particular phrase or something like that it's not sexy enough I I don't think we should publish that one yeah they're not superheroes of science. They're just regular, normal people that have biases and uh, conflicts just like everybody else. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yet we're trusting well, also, them with our health. Yeah. It's also that review, the word review strikes me as being kind of interesting because it's not uh, QA, like uh, quality insur- quality assurance mm-hmm. uh, or quality control. Like when you do, and I'm, I'm guilty of not doing this, but when you do real good quality assurance on something, you practically kill yourself trying to break a process or a system or anything like that. And then you log everything that goes wrong. And, you know, you work really hard at that one thing. So peer review is not that, you know, the word review even to me indicates that it's more lackadaisical than something where like these people need to be, or not these people necessarily, but whoever is quote unquote reviewing the study needs to be actually working on it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not just, I got it in the mail, I reviewed it for a few hours, and sure, maybe they read it, but they don't really care that much or whatever. But even if they concentrated on it for three or four hours, that's not, like, they need to be, as a team, you know, heads down on this thing trying to break it. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that would be the way I would think to, to do that. So in my mind, the whole system is already uh, flawed, you know, based on mm-hmm. that. According to John Ioannidis, the biostatistician from Stanford University, he says that studies, you know, in biomedical research, uh, both observational and preclinical studies, they cannot be replicated, you know, and the rate could be as high as 90%. It's stuff that you cannot replicate. Yeah. Yeah, I think Which I is came crazy. across something that said that only six out of 53 landmark cancer studies could be replicated. And mm, wow. 43 out of 67 studies on cancer and cardiovascular treatments couldn't be replicated. And only a third of 100 psychological studies couldn't be or could be replicated. Yes. That's deep and yet, in. then we get these headlines <laughs> in the new in media you know, reporting on things. And that basically go down doctor on, on the one thing, like, uh, you know, medication research, but specifically about studies and um, studies on, you know, health supplements or things like that. Well, you don't see very many on health supplements, but no. And then what happens is they they get this uh, crazy sounds. The press release goes out and next thing you know, it's the headline. Mm-hmm. But it's like how much rigor these studies have actually gone through. I mean, most of these studies, like especially if they're like, you know, observational studies or like just looking at a population and doing food questionnaires to, to people aid and stuff. But yet it, it shows up in the headline if it's as if it's hard fact. You know, oh, there was a study that said this. Like if you say study, it basically means like, you know, Jesus Christ himself has said that this is true. So yeah. it's like, <laughs> nope. Like, like nobody's doubting it, right? And it just spreads throughout the media, and uh, it's it's not true. And it's going to actually make people like alter their behavior based on what they're seeing in this headline. A lot of times, they're not even reading the uh, article, and they're actually altering their behavior based on this. Like, it's like Gabby was saying before, this is actually quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like to have this kind of like nonsense kind of spread out there. Mm-hmm. It's well, just I feel like bad too the cholesterol. Me. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the cholesterol guidelines, I was going to say that yeah. if only like 90% of re- or 10% of research actually can be replicated, what does it say about all the pharmaceutical protocols that we have, you know, mm-hmm. for cholesterol, for oh, yeah. blood pressure, for well, even the, for- even the fact <laughs> that people consider their cholesterol numbers to be a thing is entirely due to the media. 
right? Like it's like you you know we the research has come since then to show that you know the actual hard numbers on cholesterol are not that important in a lot of cases. So it's like just the fact that people are kind of monitoring their cholesterol and getting their readings done and like you know checking these kinds of things is like it, that in itself is all because of media headlines. Mm. What that tells That's me is thing. that since we can't rely on clinical trials, we can't rely on the drug companies who sponsor these trials to allow negative studies to come to light. What that tells me is that we are the guinea pigs or whoever takes <laughs> these, certain, these drugs or undergoes certain procedures. They're the guinea pigs because they're not getting the truth from the trials. So mm-hmm. eventually, you know, we just have to wait a few years and see what the fallout is going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's like assuming that the fallout will be recorded yeah. and actually um, anybody will actually do anything about it. I mean, they say the same thing about uh, GMOs, right? It's like, we are the experiment. It's like, no, if it was an experiment, people would actually be, you know, observing and taking notes and Mm -hmm. trying to actually figure out what it does. But I think in a lot of cases, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Once the drug's on the market, they don't give a shit. And they'll just, you know, bury any negative evidence. Yeah. Well, with GMOs, too, just having the base premise be that they are grass, generally... What is generally it? accepted it as safe. Generally recognized yeah. as mm-hmm. safe. Yeah, so they're already starting from a misinformation point of view, mm-hmm. that they mm-hmm. are exactly equal, mm-hmm. and then they base their studies on that. And anybody who disagrees is a Luddite. They're anti-science. <laughs> yes. It's, yeah. Why it's wouldn't you be anti-science if 90% of the studies aren't reliable? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, you know... <sighs> The anti-science thing, the pro-science thing, that's why I said that earlier, that it makes me sound dumb, because I'm not. I'm, I'm pro-science. I honestly love the scientific method. I think it's great, and on the rare chance that I happen to apply it in my life, it works. Uh, mm. But, you know, yeah, the, the establishment, I think, is kind of what should have more of the focus, because, like, I'm – personally, I would say that I'm anti-scientific establishment mm-hmm. based on many, many factors. I mean, you know, I could say one or two, but there are, like, 20 that I feel are really valid in my own mind for like, no, this is messed up. You know, like we were just talking about um, uh, cannabis and CBD in in a recent show. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that is not being widespread administered to every single cancer patient, you know, at least in the country, if not the world by this point in history is, is one, you know, that that's a, that's a good enough one for me, but there are so many hundreds of others of reasons. Mm -hmm to not trust these folks. But I think it's important to distinguish between that and science itself because it gets a lot of, like, yeah. you know, if I say I'm anti-vaccines, well, you're anti-science. Well, no, not really. Cause I think science shows that vaccines are bad for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so would exactly. skeptical be a better word? I think so. Yeah. I think it would, but even that has been kind of twisted that term skeptic. Yeah. yeah. It's it like, you know, the basically mean in the, in this day and age the people I see claiming they are skeptics are basically just people who, only will take the official kind of uh, stance on anything that they yeah. uh, they that they're, they're skeptical of everything except for the mainstream accepted um right like snopes yeah yeah well, or the uh, or the oh i just the the amazing randy reminds me of that guy too. <laughs> i don't know how many people know about him but yeah, i'm not anti science either but i think that people view science in different ways. Like my definition 
of science is whatever the truth is about nature and reality and how our bodies work. And other mm. people's definition of science may be whatever the guys in the white lab coats tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like Sayer G said in an article called uh, Evidence-Based Medicine, A Coin Flip's Worth of Certainty. And he says that it's it's basically what we live in is a pseudoscientific, sorry, pseudoscientific medical dis- dictatorship. Mm-hmm. I had trouble getting that one out. But he's basically saying that science is, you know, it's become a brand, like a possession. Um, and it's, there's a scientific caste, you know, the elite. And they basically dictate what is true and is not true. And it's like it, it has nothing to do with actual science and actually figuring things out. Um, and it's just because, you know, the, the human bias and stuff kind of gets in there. So it, it makes me wonder. I mean, if we can't trust this stuff, like how do we know anything now? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Uh, you know, well, I, think, I, mean, <laughs> I think old wisdom is a is a key. Is it specifically to what you said? I think in a lot of cases, this is going to sound cheesy as hell, but old, old wisdom is the key yeah. to that. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, because there is something to be said for things that have been used for thousands of years, right? Like, I mean, that, that it while it won't be accepted because it hasn't gone through placebo controlled um, trials. Um, you know, if something is like kind of a traditional medicine or a traditional method or something like that that's been used for thousands of years, you have to assume that there is something behind that. And maybe that should just point to a need for research on it. But of course, think, you know, yeah, natural think, medicines aren't really profitable in that way, so the, the research doesn't get done. I think homeopathy is a really good example of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, especially lambasted too by the press. (laughs) Exactly. Well, yeah, big time. I mean, recently the NHS actually said that they're no longer going to be uh, supporting it because it doesn't work. And it's like this this is one of my pet peeves for sure because is that the way that it can't really be subjected to clinical trials, placebo controlled, in the same way. Because each individual homeopathic remedy is specific to the individual and their specific state. So you can't just take like 500 random people and give them a homeopathic remedy and see if it cures a certain disease because it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. So it's like you, you have to evaluate it in a very different way. And of course, the medical establishment isn't going to do that because they don't understand how it works because they're not interested and so they would rather just say, well, because I've never seen a placebo control study, then it's, it's not. It's bullshit. It doesn't actually work. But um, the fact of the matter is if they actually, you know, studied it on its own merits, like on like the way that it actually works, they would probably be quite blown away. Or not. Just betrays their ignorance, you know. <laughs> yeah. And there's no financial gain to prove. Well, Exactly. You can get a homeopathic yeah. remedy for like under ten bucks. Well, you'd think you that the companies would jump. Uh, you could. The homeopath- homeopathic remedies are like the perfect, uh, you know, goose with the the golden egg for pharmaceutical companies. Are you kidding me? You only have to use a billionth of your source material, <laughs> in the, so, well, and just charge whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, the funny thing is that apparently the um, one of the reasons that uh, there's such a push against homeopathy is just that. That basically there's no reason to buy these big, um, you know, expensive pharmaceuticals when a homeopathic company could take one pill and make like, you know, thousands of doses with it and um, essentially have, you know, the same thing. 
So yeah. yeah, I think I think that that's actually one of the reasons you see such a push against it. I, you know, that's assuming that the pharmaceutical companies actually even know how it works and have bothered to look at the implications or anything. That's a good point. They probably a lot of them just by default think that it's just airy fairy woo woo. And when you ask them what it is, well, I don't know. It's just some kind of magical thing. I wouldn't you be know? so. I wouldn't be so sure. I think the pharma- pharmaceutical reps they do visit Congress's alternative medicine. Like the concept of um, electrical medicine and all these, mm. you know, fancy things that are being done that could be really be cheap. They're keeping an eye on it, you can always, mm. you know, count on a pharmaceutical rep, you know. Yeah, where, where, where that where that distinction comes in between what they're cool with and what they're not? Because you'll hear, I mean, I, I, so okay, I'm not trying to say I heard this word for word, but I could I could imagine a doctor saying we've heard some really interesting things about using electricity, you know, and we're going to try that along with this and this and this. But then when you give them homeopathy, they're like, no, uh, you mm. know, so where, where's that line between like, Oh, this is kind of interesting. And Oh, this is BS. Mm-hmm. Um, business. In a, a business, right? Yeah. I think, yeah, I think so. Can we make money out of this? Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think that has a lot to do with it. Realism too. I mean, homeopathy seems to be like a non-material kind of thing um, versus, you know, electricity. Yeah. It's like, okay, I can buy that. Yeah, electrical currents. There's obviously electricity in the body. So, yeah, I can buy that that would work. But we're going to dilute something to the point where it, there's no longer any of the actual substance there and it's still going to have an effect. Nope. That's that's yeah. beyond my, uh, my, my belief system. I sure. Think They'll, they also protect their market. You know, if a lot of people can benefit from this other thing, oh, we better go into it or yeah. we better discourage that, you know. Mm-hmm. And, or let's discourage it until we come up with something. Yeah, I think, that that's, we what can say. <laughs> I think that's what you're seeing with cannabis research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and they are jumping in on that now, too. I mean, there's uh, we don't need to get into it, but there's things happening in the states where the the money that you need to get into that into in the the medical field in new states for cannabis specifically is a lot a lot of money to get in on the ground floor to be a researcher or developer of any kind uh yeah it's it's crazy so they're they're already doing that in that context raising the financial stakes yeah well the other thing is too is that you know a lot of times people are saying oh yeah well you know big pharma is uh um you know sabotaging like the natural health industry or something like that but actually if you look behind the curtain at the financial connections and everything almost all the supplement companies out there are actually owned by pharmaceuticals Mm. and it's like yeah they're not encouraging that people buy natural remedies or anything like that um just because they're not the big money makers that the the actual pharmaceutical um you know interventions are uh at least that's my assumption but, um, you know, they know, they see like, you know, it's, it's an income stream. So it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, there's a segment of the population that's really into this natural health stuff. So let's get on board. And, yeah, you know, they, awesome. they buy up all these companies and then, you know, that's, that's who you're supporting still. Yeah. It's like the big bankers who settle weapons to both sides in the conflict. They yeah. They make money no matter who wins. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, you can see that. I mean, you can see a microcosm of that in all the the industries. You know, you look at food, and 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 companies like Kraft Food are are putting out artisanal cheeses that's you know that's Kraft yeah. with a little flavoring in it, stuff like that, and they're being labeled as green or sustainable, you know, wholesome, 
they're using yeah. the beneficial. I mean, it's again, a tale as old as time marketing and manipulation. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's the same thing for sure. I could see Pfizer putting out a, a, a holistic line, you know, of, of supplements that's supposed to go along with their pharmaceutical treatments. And, but their logo is real small on the back of the bottle and it's like whole life, you know, or something like that. No, well, <laughs> yeah, they don't, yeah. well, they don't put it on the bottle. That's the one thing they don't put it on. Uh, they actually keep them completely separate. Like uh, you won't see, you can't go to Pfizer's website. I'm Pfizer. I don't know if they actually own anything. I'm just throwing the name you out couldn't there, go yeah. to, yeah, you couldn't go to Pfizer's website and actually find any connection to the, the, um, the, the other companies like the the yeah. supplement companies they keep yeah. it completely separate and it's it's only kind of through digging that you can actually find well who is this this is my favorite supplement company who are they owned by oh Pfizer how about that yeah they're probably connected to like <laughs> shell companies and stuff well there's a totally. there's a water there's a water company now not Nestle or or Coca Cola but uh, I don't have to look this name up but they own uh, like hundreds of brands throughout the country. Um, so you would think like you go into to some town in Wisconsin, you get a bottle of bottled water from the gas station that says deer something on it, you know, and that's owned by this company that owns 200 other companies that are all labeled differently, but you would never know that. I think that's yeah. how a lot of things work. Uh, you know, Circo. Organics are like that planet. too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, all the big food company, big processed food companies actually buy up all the organic brands hmm. and then they start trying to change the the regulations on uh, organics so that they can start making their products cheaper and stuff. Yeah. Well, that's, I have a friend who, who uh, I haven't seen him in a while, but I remember he would always say uh, that Walmart is the largest uh, carrier of organic food in the world mm-hmm. or the largest distributor of organic food. And I did like that stuck in my head ever since then. Cause I'm like, damn it, it's true. You know, <laughs> uh, it really is. It, it doesn't make it better. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a sad, I think it's actually a sad state of affairs. Like if I go to the Walmart in town, I can get organic grass fed beef, uh, lamb, uh, all sorts of actual really good things. And I go to my local co-op and they have good things, but they don't have that selection because they're not Walmart. Yeah. And it's like, you know, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it's frustrating. Um, but I'm getting off topic a little bit. But the organics <laughs> industry is a billion dollar a year industry now. So they're just looking mm-hmm. at that market share. We yeah, have to, you exactly. know, people are changing, so we have to corner that edge of the market. Sure. Yeah, yeah it's just well, like any other kind of trending moniker, right? It's yeah. like, you know, pink shorts are in right now, so we got to start pumping out pink shorts. It's like, well, organics are the big thing now, so we got to start taking a piece of that market. Yeah. Gluten-free, like everybody now sells yeah. gluten-free. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, gluten-free. Yeah, GF. I love seeing like GF potatoes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, they're like fruit. Yeah, they're they're like that yeah. already, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like when the cholesterol-free thing was really big too. It's like you'd see like I remember seeing cholesterol-free pasta, and it's like, come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> pasta anyway. It's yeah. all flour. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh god! You see that you with the non-GMO too thing? The uh, coconut water yeah. is non-GMO. Yeah, or uh, yeah, salt. Right. Salt yeah. is non-GMO. Oh yeah, non-GMO yeah. salt. Wow, that's much better than this GMO salt. <laughs> Fat-free, gluten-free, non-GMO salt. <laughs> no sugar added. Yes. Yeah. 
Antibiotic. 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 Well, in the lines of like um, <clears throat> potential solutions, I, I I hope that this is not too too off topic, but I think that it pertains to this idea of thing. So, peer reviewed studies, this whole system is something you got to take a, a hypothesis, you know, um, uh, and and run with it uh, using the scientific method. You need checks and balances in place. So that that system for testing things. There's some very interesting new stuff, and uh, listeners, if you uh, are not aware of this, I encourage you to look it up. It's a little mathy, a little geeky, but like um, Bitcoin, so the blockchain technology that's behind Bitcoin uh, can mm-hmm. be used, and other cryptocurrencies can be used in other applications, for instance, to authenticate your ownership of your car uh, so that nobody, your car would be practically impossible to steal unless you had a crane that you could carry it away with. Um, uh, it, there's now... AirKey for Airbnb, where they're using a, a blockchain technology so that you can you can digitally send the key to your house to the person who's going to be coming to stay there, and they're the only person that can use that to get into the house. Huh. Um, <clears throat> so that's all blockchain technology that came out of cryptocurrencies, and I think it might actually have an interesting application here uh, in peer-reviewed studies where you can have an authenticated log of what has happened in any given process. Um, so yeah, I'm going to put my prediction on the table that somebody's going to come out with blockchain for peer-reviewed medical studies. I don't understand that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like, I don't... Bitcoin studies? A, we need Jason to call in and explain that. He knows way, way more about it. Interesting. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, well, it's, not to derail. But it does... I mean, the, the whole thing does kind of bring up an interesting... Um, point of like how we actually know things. And, you know, I think, you know, most of the listeners here are going to kind of know that when they see a headline, they shouldn't just believe it. But the fact of the matter is that most people don't know that. But I wonder if we can kind of like, there's, there's a way to kind of like increase the value of knowledge outside of this corrupt scientific system. I mean, we were talking before about kind of ancient wisdom. And I think that that's probably uh, valid as well. But I think also, like, you see things like, um, I think forums are an interesting one, Mm -hmm. where it's kind of like people are trying things on forums, and they're reporting their results, and you kind of get, even though it's like a very small sample, nonetheless, you're kind of getting an idea of um, what's working and what's not working for people. So particularly, I mean, you see forums on specific diets or something like that, and people are like, oh, I'm trying this, oh, I'm trying that, and, you know, they're sharing information about troubleshooting and and all those kinds of things, and you kind of can get an overall idea of what's actually going on there. And it's not done with any kind of scientific rigor, you know? It's everybody just conducting their own personal experiment in a way. You know, it's like, well, if I change this parameter, what what changes in me? So I, I think that that's another kind of interesting area. And, you know, I, I don't think it can necessarily translate to um, headlines where it's like such and such a forum found that, you know, the Atkins diet worked really well or average of this many pounds lost or something like that. But nonetheless, I think it is like maybe people who are actually looking for real information and aren't necessarily buying into the whole science, um, you know, the science dictatorship is God. You know, they'll look for other ways of kind of like getting information. Well, that's another good thing about the Internet that your doctor warns you not to read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
if we rely on old wisdom, like Jonathan said, and then like Doug said, do our own experiments, I mean, we can come up with something that's much better and that's more applicable to our own individual health versus reading what some guy in a white coat who was fondling rats wrote about. (laughs) (laughs) We become scientists. Yeah. Yeah. Citizen scientists. Isn't that what they call them? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> I like it. Well, that's, I mean, that theory is being applied to everything else, right? You have crowdsourcing, mm-hmm. funding, crowdsourcing, mm-hmm. inspiration, uh, you know, um, uh, cloud uh, networked systems, you know, that are use, utilizing many, many machines. Um, hackers were doing that back in the day before where they would reach out and utilize the processing power of many machines on a network. So that mm-hmm. concept of, of um, bringing together, you know, more, uh, you know, more power uh, to the situation, more minds, more skills, more abilities. Yeah, mm-hmm. we should be doing that. Um, and, you know, but it's not, uh, of course, it's not infallible, but this system is obviously so screwed up already. I mean, how are we going to do worse? I bet if you made medical research open source that it would uh, it would explode within like 10 years. Mm, be crazy. Interesting. Yeah, but oh, I, don't Jonathan, think be, uh, I don't think it would happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, one uh, of the, uh, one of our forum... Uh, sorry, not forum. Uh, Chatters actually uh, posted something about blockchain peer-reviewed journal. Nice. So if anybody listening live wants to check that out in the chat, yeah. Jump uh, can, read it right now, can you do a GoFundMe for your own independent scientific research? Because most research is funneled into certain lanes, certain areas, and you can't go outside of that. That's one of the problems with evidence-based medicine. You have to study what they pay you to study. But it's not really uh, a forum that allows free discovery of new information. So mm. I wonder if there are these basement scientists who are doing GoFundMe pages so they can study. That's oh, man, you'd get in some good idea. Trouble. <laughs> you think so? Oh yeah, That's I do what think Tesla so. Was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why do you think you get in trouble for it? Studying Oregon. I mean, all the independent scientists basically have been crucified. Yeah. I I guess I meant specifically medical research. Oh, yeah. Like if you were trying to, you know. Drug trials, yeah. I I can see that that would get pretty sticky. But, um, yeah. They're doing that with gene drives. I mean, there was an article on SOT recently about uh, the Bay Area, you know, the whole. Silicon Valley, they're just injecting themselves with these gene drives to make more muscles or whatever, mm. darker hair or hair at all. I don't know, what? but it just sounds completely yeah. insane. Like in- no, injecting genetic material? That's what they're doing? Yes, yes. Yeah, Peter. Peter <laughs> Their own genetic material or somebody else's? No. I've heard about what you're talking Good about. Peter Thiel, Peter Thiel is one of the co-founders of uh, Facebook, uh, multi-billionaire, uh, injects himself with uh, or gets transfusions of young blood. Mm. Oh, oh well, I've heard of the blood, yeah, the blood, the blood thing. I thought that's what you were referring to, but you mean different, different oh, types of treatments. Let's see if I can find it. Wow. Well, what I was thinking of, um, there was some nutrition researcher, and he wanted to study the effects of an all-meat diet. So hmm. I think he advertised for it, and a bunch of people were willing to participate, and he started some kind of funding drive for it, so he's going to go for it. I don't know if he actually See, started, but I read about this a couple of months ago, and he was going to try and start that. 
if he could get go it. for it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's interesting off. because I'm sorry. The, no, go ahead. I was just going to say I don't have a problem with that at all. I think that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, well, suggesting that people eat something and then you know come back with their with their findings, mm-hmm. you you would have a hard time, I think, prosecuting for something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is interesting because as soon as you put it into your body in some other form, you know, like a needle or a pill or something like that, then it's a, then it's an issue. But if it's a food, uh, you know. I, anyway. Yeah. Somebody found one of our chatters has posted. Yeah, I want oh, to yeah. help humans genetically modify the cells from the Guardian. Mm-hmm. 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 That's Former disturbing. NASA scientist. It's a NASA biochemist, former NASA biochemist, Josiah Zayner, became an yeah. online sensation by conducting gene therapy on himself. Yes, that's it. <laughs> and where is he Jesus. getting the genes from? <laughs> what is he doing? Is Levi's. <laughs> well, uh, I was just briefly skimming this article. It's pretty cool. John Halamka to lead new peer-reviewed peer-reviewed blockchain journal. Uh, so it, long story short, he says, I can think of several use cases in which blockchain would be helpful to guarantee the integrity of medical records. Uh, hmm. So that's kind of that's kind of interesting. We don't need to get way into it, but that's cool. Trendsetter, thanks for that one. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, I, do you guys want to go to the, uh, the pet health segment for today? Zoya's got a good one for us on pain in cats. So let's check that mm-hmm. out, and then we'll wrap up when we come back. Hello and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week I would like to share with you a recording by Dr. Karen Becker about pain in cats. Since cats are predators and are good at masking symptoms of illness or pain, when they do show us something, it means that you should really pay attention. Karen Becker describes what exactly you should pay attention to. So listen up and have a great weekend. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and today we're going to discuss pain in cats. Cats present a special health challenge for both their owners and veterinarians because they're so skilled at masking pain and discomfort when they're injured or ill. As your kitty's primary advocate, it's important to realize that pain is a serious medical problem requiring treatment. It can delay or prevent proper healing from an injury or surgery, and it can also cause a loss of appetite, which for kitties can ultimately be life-threatening. Chronic pain can cause inactivity and loss of overall quality of life. It can also damage the bond you share with your kitty if his personality or behavior changes or if he becomes aggressive, which is not uncommon. In addition, when pain isn't managed effectively, it can progress from what we call adaptive pain, pain caused by a specific injury or condition, to pain that is maladaptive. Maladaptive pain is its own disease and must be dealt with in addition to routine pain management. Maladaptive pain can be a much longer duration than normal pain and considerably more challenging to treat. So above all, I recommend uh, for all of these reasons and more that it's very important to have your cat examined by your veterinarian as soon as you suspect that there could be the presence of a painful condition or situation. Some of the most common causes of pain in cats include trauma or injuries. So obviously anytime your cat is unexpectedly injured, you need to assume that there's some pain involved. GI tract disturbances can cause pain. Ingestion of poisons, dental or oral infections can cause a lot of discomfort. Urinary tract disease, infections of the eyes, ears, and skin, arthritis, 
diseases of the back or spine, any type of surgical procedure, including dental procedures, of course, as well as significant diseases like cancer, all can cause pain. Some causes of pain in cats are more obvious than others. For example, most cat parents know that if their pet has been injured and is recovering from surgery, or if they've had gum disease, or they're clearly treating an eye problem, or a recurrent ear issue, they can tell that they're painful there. But less obvious reasons for pain uh, can be an underlying issue that can be slow but consistently there and just create um, subtle symptoms that your cat isn't right. So things like a headache. We know that cats can get headaches or even migraines, but we don't diagnose them in veterinary medicine. But certainly the, that symptom is there and is probably intensely painful. Stomach aches are another thing that we anticipate all animals have, but we don't necessarily know it's occurring at that time or anything going on inside of your cat's body that we can't see that could make make for some discomfort. Older kitties absolutely can develop older cat aches and pains, osteoarthritis, intervertebral disc disease, and spondylosis, or other types of joint degeneration can also be possible, all of which create some discomfort in the body. If you notice subtle signs of pain in your cat, I recommend having your kitty evaluated by your veterinarian. And the sooner you find out the underlying cause of your cat's pain, the sooner you can begin to help your cat feel better. The reason cats hide pain is because in the wild, they're prey for other animals when they exhibit signs of weakness. So even though cats are predators, predators they're small predators. So other larger predators, of course, uh, can find injured animals vulnerable. So cats are excellent at masking pain. A cat showing signs of pain is uh, makes them weak and vulnerable. So they're really, really good at pretending like everything's fine, even when they're not. Recently, a team of researchers developed a list of 25 behavioral changes that indicate pain in cats, which you can find in the article attached to this video on our website. Most cats in pain do not vocalize. However, if your cat that is typically silent is either crying or meowing more or even has an increase in the respiration rate, you need to be thinking that there's probably some type of discomfort occurring in their body that you want to address immediately. Sometimes the only symptom of pain is uh, a new behavior, like the kitty skips a meal or is all of a sudden under the bed a whole lot more than they have been before. So you want to include behavior changes as a means of potentially diagnosing pain. Since relieving kitty's pain is the first priority, oftentimes we have to treat the pain separately while we're doing diagnostics to figure out why the pain is there. If your cat requires surgery, then obviously there's going to be pain involved. So no matter how minor or routine the procedure is, you need to ask your veterinarian how they're intending on managing pain. So for example, when pre-medications are given before anesthesia, it not only helps decrease pain in the, pa in the patient, um, it can also help sedate them prior, but it also increases the effectiveness of the anesthesia so the cat requires less anesthesia. So ideally, uh, you're working with a veterinarian who understands all of this and is identifying appropriate pain management before, during, and after the surgical procedure. That's really important because it's shocking to me the number of veterinarians that still aren't administering regular or routine pain management during surgical procedures because they wait until the patient expresses a need for pain management and then they supply it. And that really is not only um, unfair to the animal, it actually prevents pain management from being perfectly effective. So thinking about pain preemptively before the patient's going to acquire pain is not only kind, it's smart. So that's a discussion for your veterinarian if you know your cat is undergoing any type of surgical procedure. 
ideally, when you're dealing with a vet that understands the importance of pain management and is well-versed in the most appropriate drugs needed for felines to prevent and alleviate pain, um, that's obviously ideal. Most importantly, if your cat has undergone any type of procedure, whether it's a dental extraction or they've had anything cut off of them, it's important that if you envision it would be painful for you, then you need to be asking for pain medication from your veterinarian, even if they don't automatically offer it. So make sure you just demand it. The vast majority of cats experience a great amount of stress when taken to the veterinarian. So fear and anxiety actually make pain worse, as does being restrained for any reason. So if you already have a painful cat and that gets really stressed at the veterinarian and they have to go to the veterinarian, uh, or if there are some procedures that will need to be performed while you're there, you might want to consider asking your veterinarian for either some anti-anxiety medication that will help reduce your cat's response or for extremely stressed cats. The very kindest option I can recommend is a few puffs of gas anesthesia. Think of it like nitrous gas. If you have a dental anxiety, you go to the dentist and you know you're having a cavity filled, a lot of you will wisely pick a gas that will help relax you um, and help make the procedure more bearable for you. And the same can be true in veterinary medicine. So rather than unnecessarily harsh restraint for an already overstressed cat, I strongly advocate the use of inhalant gas. Gas is a very safe and gentle, kind and appropriate approach to acquire the diagnostics necessary to get a correct diagnosis for why the cat's painful without contributing additionally to this um, uh, stressful situation where there's a lot of handling or restraining involved. You can also inquire whether the veterinary clinic uses uh, synthetic feline facial pheromones, which is a spray that helps calm patients. And these pheromones um, have been really beneficial for many, many cats to help cope with stressful situations. They come in diffusers and they can be plugged in the exam rooms or misted on the kitty to just help them relax before the procedure begins. Uh, they can also, this spray can also be sprayed on tables, towels, and hands. And I also like to coach my, my clients with highly stressed cats through some things they can do at home before the veterinary visit, including flower essences. There's uh, dozens of different flower essences, including rescue remedy, that can be very safe and beneficial for the highly stressed feline patient. Diagnosing pain can be quite challenging. If your veterinarian can't determine the discomfort in your cat, I recommend seeing another type of practitioner. So for instance, you could get a second opinion from an animal chiropractor or a rehabilitation practitioner, which is someone who practices basically physical therapy for cats and dogs. Many of my clients actually report that animal communicators and Reiki masters have been incredibly beneficial at identifying the underlying source of discomfort in their cats when veterinarians have not been able to do so. My point is that you need to keep looking for the root cause of pain in your cat until you have identified it. Don't let your veterinarian just send you home with pain pills when you don't yet know why your cat's painful. Pain medication for cats requires special knowledge and careful attention. For example, certain opioids like narcotic painkillers cause fewer side effects than in kitties than other species. And most NSAIDs, which are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, actually create more side effects in cats than other species. So it's not that we can't use NSAIDs in cats. It's that we have to be very, very cautious of the type of NSAID, the dose of the NSAID, and the duration of therapy. Many veterinarians like to use steroids, like prednisone, which unfortunately, although they manage inflammation well, they do have long-term potential consequences. Your veterinarian should be very well versed in the latest research and most appropriate medications for feline pain management. And if they're using drugs on a short-term basis to manage unidentified pain, you need to ask what their plan is for identifying the underlying source. 
as most readers here know, I'm always very cautious about using medications on a long-term basis unnecessarily, whether it's vaccines or antibiotics or steroid therapy, whether it's constant flea and tick preventives or any other pharmaceutical or pesticide agent that carries potential side effects. We really recommend, of course, that you're thinking about why we're using these and are they truly necessary. The alleviation and management of an animal's pain is a different ballgame in some instances because I'm not shy about using appropriate pain relief drugs as needed. I use them to make the patient feel more comfortable and as, as comfortable as possible while I'm trying to find an underlying reason for the pain. So in some cases, such as terminal bone cancer, I rely heavily on drug painkillers for the remainder of an animal's life just to keep them comfortable. And that's really important. But for the vast majority of my patients, I'm able to wean them off of their drugs and onto a variety of other non-drug complementary therapies. Or, at least with integrative therapy, we're able to dramatically reduce the frequency and dose of the drugs needed to manage pain because we have balanced the patient on a variety of other non-toxic options that do an effective job of pain management. Since felines are physiologically very unique, there are a few effective pharmacologic agents that can be safely given long-term to control chronic conditions like arthritis. But the other great thing is that there's a lot of alternative therapies that can alleviate your kitty's pain naturally. And so our goal is to provide the least amount of drugs possible. The goal would be no drugs at all, but above all, we wanna make sure that the kitty's pain is appropriately managed with the least amount of agents that could have side effects. The great news about integrative therapy is that we have a lot of non-toxic options, including chiropractic, therapeutic massage, stretching exercises, acupuncture, laser therapy, the ACC loop, which is a form of pulsed electromagnetic field therapy. So in the case of arthritic pain, there's a lot of different things you can do. There are supplements that you can add to your cat's diet that can provide the raw materials for cartilage repair and maintenance, as well as slow down arthritis production. And that includes things like glucosamine sulfate, MSM, and eggshell membrane. If your cat is overweight, it's important to begin dieting him down to a healthy weight to decrease the amount of pain and inflammation throughout her body. It's also important to feed your kitty an anti-inflammatory diet, which means eliminating pro-inflammatory foods that create inflammation throughout the body, which makes the pain cycle worse. This means you need to eliminate all grains going into your cat's diet and members of the nightshade family, such as potatoes, which are found in most grain-free cat foods. So just because cat foods are grain-free, it doesn't mean that they're carb-free. And all carbohydrates eventually create an inflammatory response in cats. Homeopathic remedies often work wonders on cats dealing with chronic pain, as does CBD oil. So those are two great options you can discuss with your integrative veterinarian. Many kitties also tolerate turmeric and omega-3 fatty acids, as well as boswellia added to their food, which all help naturally reduce inflammation. I recommend working with a holistic or integrative veterinarian to determine how to best treat your kitty's chronic pain condition. And as I mentioned before, once we discover the most effective alternative treatments for kitties with chronic pain, painful conditions, we can actually then begin to gradually reduce or even eliminate the need for drugs that are used to manage the painful condition because we're capable of offering them alternatives that do such a great job without the need for drug intervention. Pain-free goats, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was good. Thank you, Zoya. Yeah, that's like a, one of my biggest animal uh, pet peeves is the whole uh, cat, the cat food thing is, you know, they're pure carnivores. 
Mm-hmm. It's not like a debate about it. So nobody should be feeding cats kibble. I'm guilty of it. I had done it, you know, because uh, I didn't know. So that's, you know, and I know a lot of people don't know. So I'm not trying to you know, be cruel, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so we're a bit over our time, but we want to thank everybody for tuning in uh, to the show today. I feel like we had a good discussion. Um, basically, I guess salient point being just think for yourself, you know, uh, do your research where you can uh, be independent and just don't take anybody's word for anything unless they've got 10,000 hours. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, so thank you guys. Uh, and for participating in the chat, make sure to tune into the SOT radio show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Go to radio.sot.net. Uh, we will be back next week with a different show. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye, everybody.